Hi, this is Ideas Untrapped, a podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and prosperity. On this episode, I spoke with my friend, the Black Bandit. It's a special episode, and we're calling it Ideas Untrapped, Unplugged. We talked about everything from policing in Nigeria to the response to COVID-19, property rights. We just sort of have fun with it. I hope you like it, and thank you for always listening. You're welcome, man. Thanks for having me, Toby. Yeah, so let's just jump off from your article on Medium that you posted a couple of days ago about how we have reacted to COVID-19. I'm a bit tired of COVID talk, but it's where we are, and we can talk about it. Can you just run us through a brief of, of your ideas in that piece? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, you know, right now we can't avoid talking about the coronavirus. It's all around us. Everyone's watching from home, trying to do as much as they can, protect themselves from cabin fever, save their mental health. So we can't avoid talking about it. But at the same time, we should avoid making decisions based on gut reaction. You know, and and so far it looks to me like um, a lot of decisions are changing depending on the social narrative. Right. So you can think yeah. about the U- the UK, first of all, uh, attempted to approach the their coronavirus strategy rationally to see how they could get to herd immunity as quickly as possible. You know, but what the headlines and the social media narrative changes and it's like, oh, 10 people dead. You know, they, they quickly drop that and, and move to a containment strategy. And we'll see how that plays out in the end. But the main thing is to understand that whatever strategy a country adopts or chooses has to be a local optimum, right? Yeah. And, and then you have to design it for your population. So in terms of Nigeria right now, you know, what's going on? Well, first of all, we know the NCDC has been ramping up testing capacity. We isolate folks who have tested positive, you know, and then we'll place successive quarantines, right? But, but that's, a, that's a mitigation strategy. Quarantines are part of an overall toolkit. In other words, uh, there has to be some function or, or some objective that you're trying to get at. And so the quarantines form a part of that. So my, my hypothesis is that, you know, there's, there's three different ways you can think about doing this, right? The first one is you're using quarantines to sort of flatten the curve, right? And then yeah. after this initial wave is passed, you can use, you know, sophisticated contact tracing tools to find and isolate any remaining cases, right? Um, th- this is the most popular strategy that most countries are adopting. You know, uh, I think there was a there was a very very viral article on it by Thomas Puello, and he called it the hammer and dance. And then the, the second thing is to use the quarantine to flatten the curve. So it, it kind of assumes that you have a healthcare system, and the bottleneck is ICUs, right? And so if you flatten the curve somewhat, so that uh, the throughput of people through the hospital just matches the capacity of the system, then you can ride through this thing, you know, successfully. And then the last one is, you know, just quarantine people until we discover a vaccine or a cure. So it needs to be clear which of these strategies a country is adopting or a social planner is adopting and why, right? Yeah. So it it makes sense. Yeah. So with everything you've mentioned, how would you rate or where does our strategy fit in? I think our strategy is the, is the worst of both worlds. And, and I'm saying that clearly, you know, it's, it's the worst of both worlds. Why? Because 
we don't have a way out of the quarantines. And at the same time, there's all the economic disruption that's happening that's also going to take more and more lives, right? You know, so yeah. I, I was I was listening to the, the former state epidemiologist in, in Sweden, um, yeah. the, the, pre- the predecessor to the current one. And, and he said something that struck me as insightful. He said, most countries do not have an exit strategy out of the quarantine. And the reason is that the moment a government takes a measure such as you roll back one restriction, like maybe schools or something, or bars or restaurants, the deaths are going to spike up, right? I like yeah. going to spike up. And then what do you do? You're going to get news press, bad articles saying, oh, you're responsible for killing people. And so they're going to shut it down back. In other words, reopening the economy is some kind of random experiment that is going to cost lives. So who's going to be responsible for that? It's not clear how even the U.S., uh, even Britain, are going to exit the quarantine because lives will potentially be lost. And so, you know, it's a a tricky thing um, for Nigeria to then impose this quarantine without thinking about the exit conditions, right? So I guess the real question is this, and this is something that, you know, I took away from Chris Tenson's works, for instance, is when you make a decision, you have to understand what assumptions you're making, right? And then you have to ask yourself, under what conditions am I gonna undo this decision or reverse this decision? Right. One of the bigger things that governments were thinking about when they were implementing the quarantine was that it had a lot of public support. Right. What do you do when that public support changes? Right. Which it is. Correct. It's reversing all over the world. Right. But in, in the U.S. here, at least right now, both on the left and on the right, there are groups who are saying, see, we don't want this anymore. Right. There are protests in Virginia and there are protests in California just yesterday saying, you know, Let's let's remove this quarantine for entirely different reasons, right? So so that's the first one. You're thinking about public support. If public support changes, do I take this quarantine out? And in Nigeria, it was clear from the very first day that most of the public support was coming from the elites, you know, people who had refrigerators in their house, people who had supply of food in their house, right? People who earned their livings from labor on a monthly basis or from capital or, or on some yeah. other basis, but not from those who earn their, their, their living on a more short-term basis. So, so that's the first one, you know, uh, public support. It was, it was a key assumption they were making, and it's clear to me that has changed, and they need to think about how to respond to that. Yeah. Let's talk about institutional incentives here. It kind of seemed like everybody simply followed, well, not everybody, but followed China after Wuhan lockdown, and the WHO played a role in that by openly valorizing the Chinese approach. So what are the institutional incentives behind how WHO came to be involved in what is fast turning now to be a debacle uh, with far-reaching consequences? Yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's all these things about political influence, you know, you have to look at how organizations get funded. Uh, and then even uh, one thing that I've come to realize is more important is that beyond thinking about the organizational incentives, you need to look at the incentives of the leaders of the organization, right? Uh, yes, because that's where, that's where the, the sort of the principal agent problem comes in, right? And yeah. so, you know, it's, it's clear that most of our institutions on a global level, need remaking um, just so that they can 
more adequately, you know, represent the interests of, of all the member countries. You know, the WHO clearly dropped the ball on this one, but, but they're not the only ones who, who, you know, who dropped the ball on this. The media as well, you know, with all the narrative, you know, I know I was here in the U.S., uh, all the news media are saying, oh, it's just the flu, it's just the flu, you know, but that's the wrong approach to take, right? In the middle of January, this was a, a textbook case of decision-making under uncertainty, right? We didn't yeah. know how bad it could be. We knew it was a virus. We knew um, we knew that uh, close to 3%, as was reported then, of the infected people died in Wuhan. And we were starting to suspect that there might also be some long-term health complications that sort of affected the quality of your life, even if you recovered. Or we were speculating then, right? We didn't have clear evidence of, say, the transmission mechanism and the rate. So it was decision-making under uncertainty. And how do you do with that? Well, you kind of ask yourself, what's the worst that could happen, right? What's your lower bound? What's the risk of ruin that I'm dealing with here? And then it, it could be bad, right? And this is what uh, Taleb calls the precautionary principle. And then if it could be bad at a global scale, then you want to overreact. And, and so the overreaction should have, should have come in January, right? Yeah. And now we are three months down the line in April. We have more information. Not exactly the best quality information. It's noisy information. But we have better information to make better estimates, you know, about most of these parameters that weren't unclear in January. And then we can start to make more informed decisions, this time around the risk that we are taking. And if that risk that we are taking is an acceptable risk, Right. And different countries could choose to do different things. Right. Sweden has decided that it's an acceptable risk. And we'll see how this plays out in the end. But I have to tell you that at least as of today, um, they don't appear to be doing so badly. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we talk about institutions. Right. But there's something I want to explore specifically, which is you talk about the principal agent problem. The leaders yeah. of institutions. Because we have a saying, oh, it's not about people, it's institutions. and But a lot of people, I mean, if there's going to be any kind of inquest into this, they are going to finger Tedros in all of this. We know he's Ethiopian. We know Ethiopia is very close to China. We know he was a former foreign minister, basically a diplomat. You know? So... How much influence do leaders have on institutions, and do we pay enough attention to that? You know, I, I, I perfectly agree with you. Um, it's one thing that um, a lot of people don't pay attention to. And, and even sometimes, even as researchers, we, we make that mistake. So, you know, I think there's a, there's a, there's a saying <laughs> that um, this guy, Double F on Twitter, likes to post, which is something about, an institution being a lengthy shadow of one man, right, which is the leader. In other words, uh, sort of the tone at the top, the cultural leadership shapes the way the institution will respond, right? And so it's easy to say the WHO, but you have to understand that it's not the, the organization itself as much as the leader at the top and the tone they set. And this is not just the WHO, right? Um, I think... Uh, was it sometime last year, the IMF, was it the IMF or the World Bank that had to, that they had, that had to let go of their chief economist, right? Yeah. For, for, for publishing, you know, a paper 
that basically showed that most of the aid that was going to to, yeah. to Africa was just being was just some kind of conduit and ending, yeah. ending up back in in Switzerland, right? And, yeah. And and so she, she I I think I read that paper. If I recall, it was um they used some exogenous shock to show that there were there were spikes in in Swiss accounts of government officials following transfers to to African countries for aid. And so that was an unpopular uh, message and an unpopular piece of research, and the bank declined to publish it, and so she had to go, even though she was a distinguished researcher, right? Um, yeah, from from Princeton. So clearly, you know, it's the tone at the top that that tries to dictate the message that the institution is trying to project. So as at early February, the institution's message was, "Don't blame China," right? Yeah, let's not let's not disrupt stuff, right? Yeah, unfortunately, you, you for them, police uh, language. Correct, correct. And unfortunately for them, it's come back to bite them. You know, I, I recall that I think it was on February the fourth um, that that Tedros made an announcement saying, uh, and that was after the U.S. stopped direct flights to China, saying that countries should not uh, cut off trade or flights to China. And then you know we're like, are you, you know, are you crazy? Uh, what, what, yeah. what, what's the business of the WHO to opine on trade, right? Your objective function is to make sure that information on this pandemic is circulated across countries and countries are better prepared to deal with it when it gets to their doors, right? Yeah. And so, you know, they were, they were lagging on that effect. But again, you know, they're not the only institution that didn't come out from this exercise or from this test um, as well as they could. Yeah. So another thing I want us to bite off is uh, globalization. I mean, now I can, we're going to move on from the pandemic shortly. I can sit in my house in uh, Agigi, Lagos, or Cape Town, South Africa, and read Balaji's Renaissance tweets from Silicon Valley. And I start yelling, oh, exponential curve, you have to lock down, you have to do this, you have to do that. What role has globalization, and particularly social media, played in all of this? Yeah, so, you know, social media is good. It allows for the dissemination of information really quickly around the world, you know, gets information around traditional gatekeepers. But it also shapes narrative, right? Yeah, uh, and, and that narrative can be deadly, you know, when you think about it in the light of this situation. So I'm just going to give you what I think. And, and I think this is also something that's, um, that, you know, you can, you can arrive at if you look at the literature and also think about it from first principles. And this is something that you might have also heard a little bit. So it's not like I'm saying anything new. Right. But what's the role of the government in this, you know? in something like this, let's say, take the role of the Nigerian government. And you can sort of summarize it as saying that the, the government is trying to deal with a couple of externalities, right? The first one is the healthcare overwhelm externality, which is just a byproduct of the pandemic, right? And then the second one is what, what we can call the infection externality, right? And yeah. the, the infection externality is just this idea that private mitigation mechanisms will not be up to the socially optimal necessary mitigation mechanisms. 
I don't know if that makes sense. In other words, if, if we were going to do like a bottom-up driven mitigation to the coronavirus, right? We all yeah. don't want to die. You're going to take some measures to protect yourself. You're going to social distance naturally. I'm going to do the same, right? But our, our incentives to social distance might not be enough, but might not get to the socially optimal amount necessary to stop the pandemic. So, so it's the, the apple and bees problem, right? Yeah. And so the government now needs to step in to make sure, you know, that there's some huddle rate that everybody's uh, meets in, in terms of uh, social distancing and, and mitigation. You know, the, the healthcare overwhelm externality doesn't even apply to us in Nigeria. We shouldn't be thinking about it. The only thing Absolutely. we should be thinking about is the infection externality, which is to say, you know, your right to engage in commercial activities, right, should not infringe yeah. on, on my right to life. Yeah. Right. And so how, how to then do that effectively, um, given the circumstances and the income levels of the population and the demographics of the population, that, that's the problem that the government should be trying to solve. You see what I mean? Yeah. And, and when you then um, when you then frame the problem that way, it's easy to start thinking about what the right approach would be, you know. And so uh, what I find un unnerving is when people say things like we have to shut down. Oh, my God, these people are not shutting down. And I'm like, well, you know, and your last speaker said, he said, you have to understand the poor to think about them, right? This is rights-based development, you know. And, and so if you sit 10 to 15 very, very smart people in a room and then you tell them, see, let's think about this problem. We are going to open up the economy. What's the best way to do it, right? I bet you come out with some really, really good answers. Yeah, yeah. So we know that uh, the chief of staff, the president, is dead. Condolences. So, yeah, the reaction, again, social media being the lens here, was overwhelmingly negative, you know, that some people were rejoicing in his death and this and that. And uh, our mutual acquaintance got into some trouble with his thread and, you know, lots of issues. Now, one thing I want us to talk about is how did it go, how, how did it get bad for APC that quickly in terms of public support? I mean, 2014, 2015, these guys were riding high in terms of uh, popular support, at least amongst the educated. I don't know how much that translated into actual votes, but I mean, in, in, in terms of discourse, there was an overwhelming consensus that we need change. So how did it get so bad for these guys really, really quickly? What's your prognosis for that? You know, it's, uh, it's three words, right? It's the economy, you know? But I, I wasn't an APC supporter, uh, for one. I was in favor of continuity in 2015. And the, the reason was simply memory, right? Institutional memory. If you, if you observed in 2015, you would see that a number of people who, who were supporting APC then were on the younger side, you know? Yeah. And, and they were the people who had not experienced uh, the same government in 1984, right? And so yeah. there was a lack of institutional memory, you know. I'm willing to bet that 20 years from now, 
uh, we will be the old generation, right? And then suppose um, that Buhari was alive then and he came under the APC then to, to, to contest, we would say, please don't vote for him. But our kids will say, well, this guy has integrity and they'll vote for him. And, and so that was exactly what happened. But, but the most important thing is this. A lot of the promises that the APC came into power with did not translate into real actions that would improve outcomes for people. And so it's just like a full reversal of trends. Uh, in the early 2010 to 2014, we saw a lot of people returning to Nigeria to start businesses. That was when the tech sector was booming, attracting all kinds of people from the diaspora. And, you know, we see the reverse between 2016 and today. Professionals are moving in the other direction to Canada and Australia. And so it clearly tells you that something is not working. And what's not working is simply the economy. You know, we've, we've held out on making a number of reforms that we should have over the last four years, uh, reforms in both the electricity space, uh, reforms in terms of the monetary policy, uh, specifically how we deal with the exchange rates, and then reforms in, 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 the, in the energy sector, right? We shouldn't be talking about modulation at this point. We should have wrapped up this subsidy business and even wrap, wrap up the whole idea of what they call it, bridging or stabilization, the PEF. You know, scrap all those organizations, you know, that are feeding fat on funds that should have been deployed into healthcare, into education, even into infrastructure. You know, roads. Roads are like basic, you know. And so the, the APC has failed to deliver on, on all those dimensions. And to make it worse, uh, because a lot more people are idle and unemployed, we now see that at this point we are more divided as a people because, you know, what do idle people do? Well, we sit down, we talk about what's wrong, we talk about how we, we blame the out group, right? Oh, you know, maybe if we were separated from all these other guys, uh, Nigeria would be a better place. All, all those things, uh, as far as I'm concerned, derive from the fact that the economy is not working. If everybody's busy, if everybody has a job, if everybody can provide for their families, you know, we'll spend more time at home watching the TV than, than worrying about... about um, what tribe is better than what tribe or, and all that kind of nonsense. Mm, mm, interesting. Is it that these, these are hard problems should be a bit wonkish? I mean, Tyler Cowen has this post about O-ring sectors in the economy and he, he tried to apply that to public goods. You know, take something like public health, for example. Say someone invents a vaccine, um, any health worker can, can administer them, either in the field or in the hospital. So that's not really whoring. So you don't need everybody at every level of that system to be high-skilled. But instead, it seems electricity is whoring in the sense that you need distribution, transmission, generation, and every other thing involved to be working at 99%. How true is that? How, how true do you think? Is it that these are just hard problems for us to solve? Or is it just that we have an incentive problem, ergo public choice theory? What, what are your thoughts on that? So 
my, my thoughts on on everything to do with Nigeria, right? Um, yeah, I, I don't I, I don't think the problem is the sectors, <clears throat> right? Uh, and and yeah, we understand that some sectors are harder than others, right? But but I don't think it's the sectors, you know. I have been exploring this a little bit in my thoughts and in some conversation with friends. I, I think it has to do with rights, mm. you know. It has to, it, it it always comes back to to rights, you know. What what rights do you have as a Nigerian, right? Do you have any rights? And then what rights are those? And then how do you enforce those rights? And until we can answer those questions, I, I don't think there's going to be any progress. So you think we have a rights problem? Oh, definitely. We, we have a very, very big rights problem. So uh, so how, how, do, how do we start this? Yeah. Where do yeah. rights come from, right? And we can we can explore this uh, just a little bit, you know. You know, and yeah, all kinds right. of people have t- have talked about. Oh, maybe they maybe they are natural. Maybe we just agree to them. Maybe they come from God, right? Mm-hmm. And in in the United States, right, we say, oh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? Yeah. But but at some point, uh, and I think the original proposal or, or the Lockean version was life, liberty, and and property, right? And, yeah. and it's a similar thing that Hume kind of makes, right? You know, we, we can we can have rights on on sort of three dimensions, right? And they are, they are sort of inalienable ones, right? The ones that we can't even see, it, even if we wanted to, like personality. But then every other one, and the assumption is that government exists because we want to give these rights to somebody who can enforce them on behalf of the poor and the disadvantaged in the society. Right. Yeah. But, but then this goes back to and what I found really interesting at the beginning of this year, the whole state capacity libertarian conversation um, yeah. that happening on the marginal revolution bl- blog, which is that in order for us to entrust uh, certain rights to the government to enforce them on behalf of those who cannot. Right. We have to believe in state capacity. Right. So, yeah, to, to put it differently, let's take security. Right. I'm sure, you know, the guy on body loan is not worried about security, right? Of course. He can enforce his rights to a good night's sleep there. But it's not the same for the guys in Surreal area, as we can see in the middle of uh, this whole shutdown, right? They don't have a yeah. right to a good night's sleep. It doesn't exist. They've given that right to the state to enforce on their behalf, but the state does not have the capacity to enforce those rights. And it's the same thing that happens in property. Do you own your land? I don't think you do. Why? Because, you know, if I'm way richer than you, I can come there and kick you out. And what are you going to do? Mm. Right? And, and so some people call this right-wing idea, um, the idea of the Second Amendment, you know. And there's a more fundamental idea to say the Second Amendment in the U.S. And that idea is that you don't have any rights if you cannot protect those rights. If you cannot mm. defend those rights, it doesn't exist. So I'll give you a very funny example. Um, when I was a child, I once woke up in the middle of the night uh, to some noise, and it was my dad. He had jumped out of bed, uh, pulled out his sword from the wardrobe, and apparently he was chasing some thieves. The thieves oh. got into our compound over the fence um, to steal from from my mom's poultry. You know, because this was in those days when the middle class always had some side hustle. My mom was a was a poultry, and and thieves then they used to come with guns. You know, they just had like torchlights and some 
stuff to like break open the, the poultry door in, in a bag, right? And he chased them and they dropped this bag and, and ran off, you know. But then like fast forward to maybe 14 years later, uh, I go out of the house into the back of the yard and I see this boy under our cashew tree, right? Plucking the ripe cashew fruits in my compound. How did he get here? And I don't know, <laughs> right? And I accost him. And then this boy, because we, we, we're staying in the north in, in Kano, this guy pulls out a very long dagger from his, uh, wow. from his jalabia. And I ran, of course, the 12-year-old me, I ran, ran back into the house, right? And, and, and called for help. And by the time we got there, the boy had gone away. And, and so in that specific scenario, right, I did not yeah. have rights to the cashew. <laughs> because, <laughs> because I might speak all the English from now till next year. Well, the right belongs to that guy standing beneath the tree with a dagger. And that's all. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea of property rights is something that we need to think about, you know, the... Uh, a number of people have explored this a lot in, in terms of what the existence of the Land Use Act means, for instance, for investments, you know, where you're beholden to uh, the whims of a political agent, right? Uh, so yeah. it's, 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 it's just a crazy mess, you know. It's something we have to sort out um, before most kinds of development will happen. You know, what, what rights do we have? You know, I do because you see the thing, the thing about doing business in Nigeria is that a lot of times the rules change in the middle of the game, mm. right? And why do the rules change? The, the rules change and come back to what you can do and what you cannot do, right? And, and so we need to, you know, uh, you can call it a social contract. Uh, you know, I'm not really a fan of, of social contract theory. Some people will say we need to renegotiate our social contract with the government as opposed to what they are supposed to do for us as citizens, specifically what their roles should be in our lives. You know, many of this, many of these other problems, right, I think are just a byproduct of that conversation not happening because there, there, there are other ways that we could use the market to solve a number of uh, these problems that we think are really hard today, whether it's in the energy space, whether it's, whether it's education, whether it's primary health care, right? Not necessarily, you know, uh, really expensive health care, but primary health care, right? Malaria, infant mortality, child death, right? Those, those are things that still kill hundreds of thousands of people every year, you know, and so, and they're easily solvable, right? Uh, and so that that's just what I think, you know. Mm. All, right, all right, so, uh, so much to chew on. Uh, Thinking about this, this right-based approach to um, development, I mean, you talked about the Second Amendment in the U.S. Now, how do you do with issues like, say, okay, you have the right to protect your rights. Um, so you can own a gun or whatever to defend your property you know, because it's yours. But again, as uh, I'm sure we both learned from Nozick that there are more outside constraints. So you may have the right to defend yourself and protect your life, but you don't have the right to hurt me in that process. You're constrained by that, okay? 
So, but how do you deal with the crazies where, oh, an area boy can accost you and cut you simply because they can get a court last and there isn't really, there's no social order or someone, some deranged idiot bought a gun and shoot up a school, for example, killing innocent people in the process. And all the other things that comes with people expressing or maybe over-expressing their rights, maybe out of misunderstanding or ignorance, basically. How, how do you think about that? Okay, so the interesting thing is, first of all, um, the right to defend your rights. You, you know, that, that sounds somehow, right? <laughs> Doesn't it? The, the yeah. right to defend your rights. And the reason why that sounds you know, funny, is because you don't have any rights if you cannot defend them. Mm. You see what I mean, right? You yeah. don't have a right. You, 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 any, see, for any single right um, that you look at today, and you think that that's a fundamental human right, um, best believe that we can point to somewhere in the world where that right does not exist fundamentally. Whether it's yeah. the right for women to drive their cars, whether it's the yeah. right for you to have two children, which then used to be the case, or even the right to homeschool your kids. That's a right that's under debate right now, at least in, in a couple of states that I know of here in the U.S. So in other words, rights don't just drop from heaven. Um, I think mm-hmm. that true rights are the rights that can be defended. Now, the second part, as you observe, is, of course, um, luxury of rights, which is, of course, life, liberty, Right. But he also emphasizes that your liberty cannot affect another's life. Right. Uh, that's yeah. an externality. So, so let's take it back to this idea of, um, of, say, gun rights. Right. First of all, it's an unpopular position. Why is it unpopular? Because you don't have a true counterfactual. Right. The guy who passed the laws to put seatbelts in cars, you know, he would never know how many lives he saved. Right. Because there's yeah. no true counterfactual to it. Um, but we can always complain about, you know, the cops pulling you over for not having your seatbelt on. And so it's the same thing with, with, with gun rights. It, it has no true counterfactual. So you can never see the benefits or even estimate them. But I want yeah. us to look at the problem from the fundamentals. And you see that there, there's an asymmetry between good people and bad people, right? Yeah. If you pass laws... Um, to prevent people from defending themselves by owning guns, then in other words, the people who will break that law are those who would have broken it anyway. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, and I can expand on that. In other words, look at the, the pre and post, right? If, if I was a yeah. thief and, and there were gun laws, I would have guns, right? And if yeah. I was a thief and there were no gun laws, I would also have guns because you know, it's my, it's my tool that I use in my job, in my day job, right? But now the difference is that where there are gun rights, I'm careful about going to rob somebody because I know that when I go to rob the person, he can defend his rights to his property. But in, in, in a culture where there are no gun rights, then it simply means that upfront, the government has given me, the chief, an advantage because I know that when I get there, he's going to be defenseless. So it's a fundamental asymmetry, which is that thieves would always have guns, regardless of gun laws. Uh, but the innocent homeowners 
who don't really care about violence, but just want a way to protect their property rights, are now the ones who have to pay for that law, in other words. And, you know, it's, it, it's a very interesting um, thought experiment, right? But, you know, just dial back to, say, when America was in its infancy, right? And your property rights, you know, were just a function of how well you could defend them, right? Mm. As a lot of yeah. Irish settlers found. And then that's where, you know, if, if you want to compare Nigeria to America, you know, you should always be comparing it to like the early 19th century. That's where we should be comparing ourselves to, you know, the rights to anything you have. Imagine the state did not exist because we know that there is no state capacity. And then mm. imagine how the system should work from bottom up. And then that's the solution we should go for. It is the same thing with the COVID-19 thing that we are talking about. People, individuals are good at assessing, you know, risk to some extent, maybe not up to the socially optimal level. But I could remember when um, when the corona outbreak happened, you know, everybody was social distancing, right? We didn't need a quarantine. You go to church, there was a lot of space between you and the next person on the queue, right? You go to communion. Yeah and they drop the Holy Communion into your palm. They stop giving it to you in the mouth, right? And we yeah. took all those measures then from the bottom up, right? I was looking at the open table data here. And, you know, even before the stay-at-home measures were, were, were announced, restaurants, from the day the first case was identified, restaurant food traffic declined by about 60%. So people are good at assessing risk. The stay-at-home orders only only accounted for the remaining 40%. So in, it's the same way that I say, trust people to the best decision for their circumstances because they have a lot more information about it than you. You know, so, so that's what I think. Even if you pass some kind of law tomorrow saying, you know, everyone, you, you can protect yourselves, you know, you, you can easily afford to get your gun, just pass a background check, get registered. There will still be a number of people who won't, Right. Uh, because maybe they don't have anything that's worth defending, right? No property, no family. But there are some people who will, and, and that, will change the, that will change the dynamics properly. So uh, I'll, I'll give you another example with uh, Lojacks in Boston, right? And another case of, you know, again, we don't think about things system-wide with externalities sometimes. So in, um, and it, it was a very good experiment. So if you think about car thieves, right? Yeah, captives don't want problems, right? They just want to be able to go to a car in a lot, enter the car, steal the car, and then, you know, ship the car down to Africa or Jamaica or somewhere, right? Mm, uh, yeah. and, and, and make some money on it. So, but but a, a huge problem for them then was knowing which cars to attack, right? Now, imagine a situation where, they, where there was no mechanism, right, to, to protect your car then they could just steal 100%, right? But it yeah. turns out that... Um, and, and now, now, see the interesting thing. Uh, this is what was really interesting about the experiment. is a paper by, by Anne Iris and Barry, Barry Nelbor from 70, either 78 or early 83. So if you install a low jack in your car, right, which is this stolen vehicle sort of recovery mechanism that that if someone breaks into your car and steals it, they can catch the person. If you install it in your car, you incur some costs, right? Yeah. Install it, but your car doesn't get stolen, right? So you, you don't incur the benefit. It's the insurance company that incurs, that enjoys the benefit, right? And mm. so individuals will not put low jacks on their car because why should I spend the money 
when I'm going to get reimbursed by insurance, right? But the, the worst one now was that the insurance companies were not willing to give customers the funds to put this low jack in their cars because there were four, basically there were like four main um, insurers in the Boston Metro. And so if, if my, my customers insure their cars, guess what? Theft rate is going to go down for everybody, right? But I'm the only one incurring the cost. Does that make sense? If one insurer, let's assume that they were, you know, each of them was responsible for 25% of the cars. If one insurer mandated and subsidized the cost of low jacks for people that purchased insurance from it, the benefit will accrue to all insurers because when, when you go to steal a car, there's a one in four chance that you're going to encounter a car with low jack. And so the insurers had this problem about um, socializing the benefits and incurring the cost as well. And so it took the regulation that the state passed in that time, which was like a, which created like a shock uh, to basically mandate the installation of these systems uh, with, with insurance. And then, you know, they found that car thefts dropped by about 40 percent. So, so it's, it's a problem, you know, sometimes. And you can imagine the, the same thing with, with gun rights, right? If me as a thief know that there's a one in two chance or one in four chance that a person whose house I'm going to rob might have a weapon, it will most likely deter me. You know, so we might actually see crime rates go down as opposed to up. Obviously, we can learn from other countries that, you know, uh, where people are allowed to protect themselves and put some kind of mechanisms in place, like, you know, maybe background checks to make it more difficult for the bad guys to to obtain these weapons, you know. But but for me, I'm definitely on the side of um, enforcing my own rights where there's no state capacity. Yeah, that's interesting. But again, on this rights-based approach, I mean, we are, we are speaking in the development context here. How much are rights, individualized if you still need the state to either recognize them or enforce them or in some cases validate them you know okay so and this is my problem with uh, libertarianism and all kinds of deontological approach right social interaction is a bit of a negotiation, you know. So, I mean, you and I, we meet, we interact, maybe on the street. If you slap me, I have a choice to retaliate or go my way or find some other way to hurt you or get even, you know. But there's a local bully problem to that, which is if you are more powerful than I am, then basically there's nothing I can do. So you need, and again, I want to square this with North and Wallace on the importance of the control of violence first in a society before you can even speak about rights in any, in any structured manner, you know. So how much does our emphasis on rights matter if we still need the state basically to either validate or, I mean, if you get a gun and I get a gun, for, for all you know, we might be differently skilled at using it. 
So okay. I mean, there, there, there's still some, like you said, there, there's still some asymmetry, you know, and it seems like even a local optimum can only be reached via some kind of external adjudication process or dispute resolution mechanism, you know. So how much does it make sense to speak about rights in an individual sense if we still need an external enforcer? So, yeah, what, what do you think? Um, so, you know, we, we, can, we can't do without it, you know. <laughs> it's a conversation that we always have to come back to, right? Which is, yeah. which is we, we have to first of all have the rights, right? <laughs> and how do we have them, right? So... So I, I guess um, my response would be that, one, I, I'm not a no-state libertarian, and the reason is that the state has its uses, right? But, but we must be clear as to what the failure is and, and, you know, why we need the state in that space, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I've only talked about rights as a as the issue of rights as a fundamental problem. And, and the reason why I go back to rights is that Many of the other problems that we want to solve, right? And this is, you know, when you talk about O-ring and we can bring this back and forth uh, if you want. Many of the problems that we want to solve, right? They start from the assumption that people have these rights. There's no way you can talk about the principal agent problem without talking about rights, right? In fact, the principal agent literature literally developed from the property rights literature. Yeah. Right? The yeah. moral hazard literature developed from the property rights literature. You know, so, for instance, if you look at the power sector, a very key problem that you see there is that there's a hold-up problem, right? And it's not just in the power sector. If you look at many manufacturing concerns, and I've had conversations with, with you know, with businesses where you see we don't want to hire this person and train this person before they leave. What's that? Hold-up problem. But you also see the hold-up problem a lot in infrastructure. All these things assume that rights exist. So, in other words, before we even start to solve the real problem or the more visible problem, right, whether it's a coordination problem, whether it's an information asymmetry problem, whether it's a hold-up problem, we have to, first of all, solve the rights problem. And that is the thing. Now, in terms of the rights problem, you know, I, I think it's very, very easy in that if people understand what their rights are and they can agree on what to do with it, and do what they want to do with it appropriately. So let me give you a simple example, you know, because again, like you said, an individual is just part of a community. So in, in my community, we actually have community lands where this land is owned by not the individual, but the community, right? And then yeah. every, say, number of years, like about 10 years, right? They look and they see is there another age group um, that has come of age, right? And then they say, okay, look at this. The people born within this period, they've come of age. And then the community apportions them some land so that they can farm and feed their families. But of course, we have to pay for that land, but it's a token, into the community post, which will then go into doing other things for the community, other kind of social activities, age grade, mass grade, all those things take funding, right? Obviously, I'm not in the village, you know, my my dad takes care of most of those things for me, you know, but he's there to make sure that when they shared the land for me and my younger brother's age grade, he made sure he went there, 
surveyed the portion that belonged to, to the two of us. And then he, he paid the token for us. In other words, the property rights have been devolved to the community. And that's by agreement. You know, again, can go back to Hume and how he thinks about how property rights have come about. And one of them is uh, sort of by accession, right? Well, not by accession is one of them, but uh, I think the more, more important one that I wanted to talk about is um, sort of like possession. You know, when you've been somewhere for so long that there's no historical record that anybody was there before you. And so you, yeah. you've, come to, you've come to own that, that piece of land. And so we devolve our ownership to the community. Right. But yeah. it's, a clear, it's a clear decision to allow the community to decide those rights. And now we can deal with other problems like principal agent problem. Right. Uh, how do we know that the guys at the head of the village association are not, you know, maybe carving this land up differently, giving one person more than the other one? You know, but but the only reason we can have these conversations is because we've moved past the property rights conversation. But now this is the sad part. Even though we think we've moved past it. Right. And I wake up one day and decide I want to go do something with my land. And then the governor of my state then will be somebody who doesn't really like me or my village or my family. Right. And then it's going to be like, screw you. You're not getting a C of O. And so do I really own what I think I own? Mm-hmm. That, that, that's interesting. Yeah. So it, it's, um, it's a sad thing. But but you know, like I said, there's no way um, that a conversation on any kind of problem solving can move forward without dealing with the rights problem. Now, uh, whenever people move forward, they're making some assumptions about where those rights lie, right? And those assumptions might need to be tested or might not. They might eventually get tested or they might not, you know, and you can ask any lawyer. So when I was in consulting, I was in business recovery, so I had a lot, a lot of business, you know, talking with lawyers that, that do liquidations, right? And yeah. you know, they have a lot of stories to tell you, you know. You can ask any of them if you ever get one of them on your podcast about property rights, especially when it comes to, to liquidations. Uh, that's when you know who really owns what. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Let's talk about ethnicity rights. An elephant in the room for a lot of things we talk about in Nigeria. There's been a lot of chatter on Twitter. Though, I don't know, I don't think that's, that's representative of uh, the public sentiments, at least not necessarily. But it's, it seems to be a big issue. How much, how much is um, ethnic complexity, so to speak? How much is it holding us back? So there was this interesting paper by Ashraf and Galo, I'm sure you're aware, where they tried to look at what's the optimal ethnic mix for development, you know, and their result was that too much heterogeneity is bad, too much homogeneity is also bad, and there is some kind of optimal mix. They took a lot of flack for the paper. I don't buy the criticism. I don't think I don't think good structural work should die at the table of statistical rigor. But that that's my view. So, how much does ethnicity matter? I mean, um, I I can give you two kinds of answers. Yeah. Uh, 
One is what I personally believe, and the other one is it's more like uh, the academic answer. Uh, you know, and for you know, in the states, yeah, I know there's there's been a ton of work about diversity, right, or the benefits yeah. of diversity because they they approach the same thing, you know. But but sort of like the the big picture is that it's not really the ethnic diversity that matters as much as the diversity of um, of ideas, right? So so you want more heterogeneity in, in, in the ideas or in the in the viewpoint or in the approach. But the more practical matters, because I've not looked at uh, diversity in the context of the developmental econ literature. But in, in that context, right, you know, my, my naive hypothesis would just be that um, uh, people of the same ethnicity and tribe can come to a consensus much faster. And so, in that case, you know, you would you would definitely see that uh, a more ethnic mix can slow down progress, and that's that's my that'd be my my naive take on it, you know. And um, yeah, uh, I don't know what that implies for Nigeria. <laughs> well, I think I know what it implies for Nigeria. You know, um, we don't have to get consensus from every region, or nothing will happen. You know, that's just the truth. And so that leads to conversations about the structure of governance and and whether we should devolve more power to the regions. Because, you know, it's, um, let, let's put it this way, that uh, the prognosis is not good with larger heterogeneity, at least based on my priors. Mm, that's interesting. I, I don't know, we, we seem to place a lot of faith in regional governance. And I'm not really sure how much that still holds up. I don't know. I'm not. Maybe in the first republic, but I don't. I, I don't know. I don't know oh no! Oh no! It's true. It's true. Oh, you it's think? True. I do think so. I believe so. Um, very strongly. Um, oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's uh, it's sort of like um, in one of Nassim Taleb's books. Uh, I can't remember now if it's uh, if it's anti-fragile. You know, he, he looks at the the Switzerland model, right? And yeah. he compares it to, you know, to portfolio theory. In other words, you can have more variation in the constituents, right? But then when you aggregate, all that volatility cancels out. And, and so he sort of uh, speculates that that's why Switzerland is as stable as it is. And, and they haven't for all the crazy people, dictators, and their funds, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, it, so the, the, the big idea, you know, behind his thinking there is that you you want to have the volatility at the at the constituent level, and then the portfolio in aggregate is stable, right? That's why we, we index the market. Mm. The market volatility is, is about twenty percent a year, but then if you go down to the individual stock, it's about fifty. I, I'm not sure how much that applies to human behavior, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> no, I, so, no, but but it's um, I think the first thing you can think about though is like um, is like what's a nation, right? Yeah, and you can see you know like different definitions of a nation. But typically, one thing that's not missing in a definition of a nation is strong bonds of identity, right? Mm. Mm. You know, an imagined community. 
And so the the more diversity is, then you can imagine that within that 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 nation there will be in groups, there will be out groups, lots of quarrelling. I, I think when I when I just popped back on Twitter, that was when I saw, and uh, this was before the whole Corona stuff, and the government was trying to take a loan, uh, but there were arguments from different sectors that oh, why are we taking a loan of this much? But this this these guys are getting this portion, these guys are getting that portion, right? Yeah, and so that's one reason why you want to also devolve power to the regions. Let the regions be responsible for their projects, specifically within two areas, right? You can think of why that would be very, very useful. So let's think about policing and security, right? Mm-hmm. Policing should be done at the regional levels for the simple reason that, first of all, the guys at the region know much better than the guys at the center about the kinds of crimes that occur there. It's not, it's not a surprise that anytime the federal government wants to get involved in messing with the state government, right? What's the first thing they do? They change up the police commissioner. I know specifically for my state that one thing, one thing that we never liked was when you bring somebody from Kano State or somewhere, you know, and then you just throw him into Anambra State and you're like, be the police commissioner of Anambra State. He cannot speak the local language. He has to start building a network afresh to, to kind of understand what the intelligence uh, system is there. And then you always have accusations of, um, of bias, right? Because he doesn't live within the community, right? But if you had um, a police infrastructure <laughs> that was fully local, right? The, the police guys live in the community. They drink at the same bars. They understand the intelligence network. Right, we would most likely see better policing outcomes. In fact, I think that one of the main reasons why we see things like the police beating people, right, beating people up, asking for bribes, is because they are not from those communities. You think so? And hundred and ten percent sure. Now you can you can maybe <laughs> do this thought, do this thought exercise, right? A policeman right. in my village, from my village, his mother knows my mother. They go to the same market, and then he's going to stop me on the road and threaten me with a gun if I don't give me 100 naira. And you see how wonky that thought experiment is. It doesn't match, right? He's part of the community. His parents have to attend the village meeting. He has to attend the village meeting. His kids have to attend the village school, right? And so he has every incentive to be on the part of the village. And so that's the point. When When we pluck people and transplant them to different regions, saying, oh, we don't want any bias. We're sort of creating a kind of different incentive. You know, we say, we say I think there's, a, there's, this, um, there's this thing we used to say that you don't, you don't poop where you eat. You don't shit where you eat. And that's exactly what's happening. People, police officers get to go and shit where they don't eat because they will go back home and, and you know, and be nice with their family. So, so that's one. The second one is I think that for accountability, you need to devolve power to the regions, right? So you can think of this whether from the side of what's the what's on the exclusive list in the constitution and say how much of this could we move down to the state level, right? And and the idea is again this the same idea that if your governor cannot give you the excuse that he's waiting on Abuja, mm. right, then, then he's more accountable. You know, my, my village to the government house in Oka is about about fifteen minutes by bus, right? It's very easy for the market women to just you know, go there in their wrappers, naked themselves in front of the government house until he answers them. Right? <laughs> that's, that's very correct. And they do it a lot. 
you know, when they want answers. Market women are like a very, very formidable political force, you know. But but the issue is this: if it's if it's an item that's not on the list of what a state can constitutionally do, then unfortunately they are not going to get their answer, even if they sleep outside the government house for three days. They won't, right? And, and so that that's a problem in itself, right? It's the same thing with security. When you go and you meet a governor and you say, you know, oh, my God, they're robbing us. Oh, we are dying. Do something. And what does the governor tell you? I'm afraid. Even though I'm the chief security officer in name, but, you know, I'm not in, in, in effect. And so there's nothing I can do. The, the, mm. the, the state commissioner of police reports to, to Abuja. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So at least from the policing and the accountability standpoint, you know, mm. I, I think it's... Um, it's, it's very important. In, in Skin in the Game, Taleb actually mentions that he says something about morality. Morality does not scale, right? Because, mm. because you, as it goes up, you start to order, you know, me against my brother, my family against your family, our clan against the other clan, my state. So morality does not scale, in other words. Uh, we, there are some people we cannot steal from, right? But we will steal from the other. And I think, uh, you know, even though... Uh, there was a paper that uh, it's actually written by a Nigerian academic. Uh, it was Eke, something Eke. It's a 1979 paper where he talks about how corruption works. Is is part of it is that uh, something like political appointees are able to create two domains in their mind. There's what they call the public domain and and the private domain. Uh, and the idea is that you wouldn't steal from the private domain, but you steal from the public domain because guess what? You know, public money is everybody's money, but private money is is our money. You understand? Yeah. So yeah. So there's some there's some there's some logic to devolving powers. I know I know again a lot of people have said, oh, you know, you cannot give state governors the power because you know if you give them the power, they're going to turn into local warlords and stuff and stuff. And, I think uh, that that's valid. I think that they have some arguments based on the antecedents, right? But but what they're assuming, in effect, because it's a relative judgment, is that this is, is better than that. You see what I mean? Ooh. I don't, so it's not an, I'm not making an absolute judgment. I'm making a relative judgment. And I'm saying that, no, that will be better than this, right? Okay. As much as possible, we want to devolve the structure at the state level. You know, don't take somebody from Anambra North, for instance, to go and be overseeing security in Anambra South. No, the same the same idea, you know, of devolving the security infrastructure is what you do within the state, you know, and that's the idea behind community policing as well. That's interesting. That's interesting. But don't you think there's also a human capital problem to that? You know, like if our police are better trained against biases, understanding their civic duty, and again, properly equipped. They don't have to carry guns to control rioters, for example. So uh, wouldn't that solve some of the problem? And identity wouldn't matter as much as, <laughs> as it does. But brother, if we, could, if we could get rid of our biases, you know, we'd all just stand in line and be singing Kumbaya. Kumbaya. 
Yeah, that, that, is, that is the nirvana that we are talking about. That is the heaven that we are talking about, which is this idea that we start to see beyond the self, right? Mm-hmm. And we start to see each other as, as the same thing. That's exactly the same thing as getting rid of, of every single bias in our bones, right? So, but, but, so, but again, again, sorry, 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 sorry. The NYPD, for example, is not accountable to the governor of New York. So, I mean, if we reform our judiciary to be properly accountable, would identity still matter? You know, like if the attorney general's office or DSS can investigate corruption in police and vice versa. I mean, wouldn't that solve some of these problems? I, I think our structure is just chaotic, undefined, and sometimes poorly constitutionalized. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I think one thing that comes again through this, you know, because I'm, I'm also thinking about my thinking as we have this conversation, is that I'm a very, very strong proponent of decentralization, right? And, yeah. and I, the Catholic Church has this decentralization rule, which is basically decentralized as much as possible <laughs> to the constituents, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, decentralized as much decision-making as possible to the constituents, because the parish understands its parishioners better than the, the diocese which understands its parishes better than the act diocese, which understands its parishes, its diocese is better than the Vatican. Mm. So it's the same idea that I, I think about when it comes to policing, right? Now, I think there's a role for, for, for the federal government, uh, but I think that role should come in the form of coordinating, right? So you can imagine interstate crimes and, and the FBI, Right. I think there's also a role for monitoring at the federal level, whether it's yeah. the judiciary or or some kind of commission that is expressly set up for that purpose on a permanent level. But in terms of the actual policing work and the responsibility for those outcomes like security, you know, the responsibility should be at the lowest possible level. The ownership of that responsibility. Monitoring can happen elsewhere, right? We can yeah. monitor from Abuja and say, you know, we need to bring in the, the police chief of XYZ state, you know, and explain these numbers, right? Yeah. Mm. That, 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 killings, whatever, but in terms of the responsibility itself, that should go down. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about corruption. That's much vaunted... Uh, word. Uh, there's one thing that homogenizes our leaders, and that is <laughs> oil money. <laughs> you know, um, these states can say, oh, I'm the opposition, and the center is unfair to us, but when it's time for the RMAFC to meet every month, nobody complains. The Nigerian Governors Forum can simply sit down with the federal government and the Federal Executive Council and withdraw from the ECA. And, I mean, Sovereign World Fund can go to hell, you know. How much is corruption holding us back? Um, so, my answer is going to be funny. 
<laughs> uh, but my answer is not much. Okay. Yeah. Explain. I, I think that. So I think that um, more important than corruption, right, is the property yeah. rights. Mm. That's all. You understand. So you know, again, me coming from this um, angle of of saying we need to know who owns what, right? Corruption, I feel like it's, um, you know, and there's a few models that suggest that, that corruption is efficient, right? So I'm, I'm not against corruption when it is efficient, right? Yeah. But, but again, <laughs> again, I need to distinguish, like uh, my good man, Jonathan, between stealing and corruption. Uh, because, <laughs> <laughs> because, because he was right, you know, he was very right. You know, it, it's very easy to mock on the surface, but he was right. <laughs> Stealing <laughs> is when you put your hand in the tail and you take what belongs to someone else, right? Yeah. Corruption can be efficient, right? In the sense that, I, you know, in, in my mind, at least, corruption results from moral hazard, right? You know, there's a principal-agent relation, right? And then... Um, uh, the, the agent is able to take an action, hidden action, um, that the principal does not observe. So, so what do I mean? Uh, I'm trying to get the, the government wants to issue a contract for XYZ Road, right? Lagos to Badon Road. Yeah. Now, the individual in the office that will approve the contract is the agent, right? Now, I can mm-hmm. influence that agent by giving him one very, very nice uh, jeep, uh, that has something in the trunk for him, right? And then he awards yeah. that contract to my company. That's what I call corruption, right? Okay. Be- because I've, I've induced him to take an action that the agent doesn't necessarily approve, that the principal doesn't necessarily approve, right? So that's yeah. what I call corruption. It's very different from what happens typically in Nigeria, which is what I call stealing, um, <laughs> which is where the... Where, the, where, you know, the, the guy, and he just, it, well, it's still a moral hazard problem because the government officer who puts his hand or the political officer who puts his hand in the kitty and, and, and takes that money has taken a hidden action. So, you know, yeah, you could say it's semantics, but, you know, I, I think one, one, one requires a lot more bravado than the other. And one is actually more odious, at least to me, uh, than the other. Yeah, so, mm. so one of them, uh, when, when, when it's like, say, you know, some kind of advanced fee to, to cut some red tape and make things faster, eh, you know, we could overlook. But uh, but the stealing part is the one that um, that really gets to me. Now, in, now in terms of holding us back, I, I really don't think that, that that's what holding us back as much as as um, as individual property rights, you know. You know, like mm. uh, I, 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 the last speaker you had, or the second to the last, which was Nanso, I think, and he talked about yeah. how, you know, you, you, could, you could export um, your cashews, right? Mm-hmm. And, and somebody else at the central bank, because of some law, would seize your FX and disburse to you in Naira at some rate. And so, in other words, he's taken over your property and done with it what he wills, right? And, and you know, to me, that's a bigger problem than than even the stealing and even the stealing right is still tied to property rights because where where does the oil money come from mm. right it comes from somebody's property 
And, you know, the, the, the state has appropriated that property with its monopoly on violence. Yeah, and, and those, absolutely. And those, negotiations didn't, and those negotiations didn't happen. Or at least let's see them happen, right? That's the whole idea behind the petroleum sector reform. Let those negotiations happen properly. Let these individuals transfer those rights to the government. Let them decide what they want to do with their money. Mm. Right? And contribute what they will to the center. You know, so, you know, my, my take is that I feel like we can't even talk about corruption when we haven't sorted out the fundamental arrangements between the individual and the state, what we can do, what we cannot do. In fact, let's even understand properly if we have no rights, right? The people in China, they've understood that for a very long time, right? They've understood the limitation of their rights and, and they understood that basically they have none. And they're fine with it. <laughs> they live under that assumption, right? The state comes tomorrow and says, everybody have three children, you know, best believe that we start making, we start working towards having three children, right? The state comes and says, you know, we're we are moving back to one child. We do the same. The state says no cars, no cars. Don't come up, no. We understand that. But, but I think the problem with Nigeria is that we are unclear what our relationship to the state is. And so we think of the state really like a thief observing us. Mm. Is he making progress? And then they rob us. You know, mm. I think that's the relationship between us and the state. You know, we feel like we have property rights, but somebody is, is, is observing us to see if we can, you know, and, and that creates a hold up problem because, you know, automatically it's very difficult to think of a mechanism that can sustain um, certain levels of investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so in, in other words, what kind of, and this is something that I, I've been thinking about with a friend, what kind of, how do we, how do we solve that hold up problem with the government? And, and it, you know, it's 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 an open question that somebody needs to figure out. Different people try different approaches. Like I tell people, you know, if you're starting a business in, in a sector that's potentially exposed, of course, there's no way you can do it without having maybe one or two really powerful government figures on your board and all that kind of thing. But again, that just goes to show that you're hedging. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting you, you talk about China. I think Ang Yen in one of our books, I think our previous book, that, that's the Cornell political scientist, talked about how local officials in China actually leverage what would call corruption, which is personal correction, to actually provide uh, public goods and develop uh, their locales, their zones, their schools, their roads, urban housing and things like that. So, yeah, I, I think maybe... What do you think of the resource cost? Yeah. The resource cost? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it is real, right? But, yeah. But I think how it influences you is really an open question. You know, you can think of it like an interaction of resources and your culture. Mm. And that interaction will then depend on how... You know, what, what does your culture think about, for instance, saving? What, what's the cultural propensity to save? And then you shock it with, with say, resource discovery. How does that change? So that's actually what I think. That is it's not the resource cost itself that matters, but how it interacts with your culture. So in our case in Nigeria, um, I, I don't feel, again, I, I don't feel like it's the resource cost that's predominantly affecting us. You understand what I mean? 
Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, because it, 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 again, I feel like it's the property rights issue. Because the approach that we take to oil money, mm. is, I, in my head, I feel like we don't say we have excess cash, right? So let me put it this way. I think about resource costs like a shock to my income, right? Let's say I win the lottery tomorrow, right? And then I decide mm-hmm. that I'm going to go to Vegas, right? And just blow it away. Now, that's resource costs. But this one is different. This one is different in the sense that I don't think of it like my income. Now, it's stupid. I may be personalizing it, but... In in the Nigerian situation, I don't think of it like my income. I think of it like nobody's income. And that's why you hear us discuss things like oil money. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's nobody's income. So solving the property problem makes us understand that it's somebody's income, right? And and Mm. then we can then figure out if we'll have a resource cost or not. But first of all, it has to be somebody's income. And I think the way we think about the oil income now is very depersonalized you know it doesn't belong to anybody it just exists and so we just share it um now to some extent yes it does affect other sectors in the sense that it's prevented us from developing our people and looking at other ways that the government can generate revenues and this feeling that you know we have um, oil income to look at in the worst case scenario but uh yeah it's, it's it's unclear to me, right? Because the Dutch disease, right? The whole idea of the Dutch disease is that there was this income shock, and but it was a, a culture that was more homogenous. You know, for us now, um, it, it's different, right? Because there's there's oil, and it should belong to this sector of the country, but unfortunately, because of the military regime and our structure, uh, it belongs to the federal government. So it's it's very unclear what's really going on. But to the extent that it prevents us from looking at developing other other sectors of the economy, yes, there is a resource cost. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. Is there any other thing at all that's on your mind that you like us to talk about? Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Mm. Let's keep talking about Nigeria. I mean, the political future, what's your outlook? What is the most optimistic scenario and the, the pessimistic scenario. You know, people are already talking about 2023, as usual. And, uh, of course, there's zoning is already coming up. Uh, whether we'll have our first Igbo president, or maybe it's going to be Tinobu or El Rufai or, you know, whatever. What, 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 what do you think of all that? Uh, you know, and... Um, I'm just afraid that uh, when it comes to Nigeria, and, and it's sad, but I, I don't see, I don't have any hope, mm. you know, which which is a strange space to, to kind of be in. Um, but the simple reason is that, you know, I look up to the mountain, and from whence will our help come? And it's not clear to me. Right? When I get a help from the Lord... <laughs> yeah, whether, it, whether it's going to come from the Lord. Now, see, I, I think, so So there are a lot of things that need to happen, right? I, I think that, you know, we can't even have any conversation about our rights until power is devolved to the regions. Now, initially, I was kind of hoping that this, this coronavirus episode will, will sort of lead to that. You know, I mean, we can start to see some of that splintering, you know, here in the States. The States are... The, uh, are recognizing that they are supremo, right? Mm-hmm. And that is a union of states. 
And, mm. you know, the same thing, it looked like was going to happen in Nigeria when the president dawdled and making an address. And so different state governors had to come out and assert, um, you know, their supremeness over their domain. And, and I really loved that, even though I did not agree with some of it, right? Like, you know, one state just waking up and quarantining um, without thinking about it. But I loved them exercising their power independent of the federal government because that's how we get to devolve, right? The states need to test their independence muscle from the federal government. Now, whether that will still happen uh, is not clear to me, and it's very, very doubtful. But we will see a lot of activity, um, not good type of activity with, with where the oil <laughs> prices look, but, but hopefully we, w- we should be able to see, you know, some key reforms at least in the next year or two. Because, you know, the government is broke. Oil prices mm. are below 20. A, a lot of uh, production is going to hopefully shorten um, as we wait it out. And that, that should force us to start opening up stuff, right? Uh, because if you want to ramp up tax revenues, well, you need to have production-friendly policies at least, right? And if you can't pay taxes, if they don't make money. Exactly. And if you have to rely on taxes for the money, even if you want to steal it, but if you have to rely on taxes, then you have to implement sort of production-friendly policies, you know. The alternative is to expropriate what exists, but right now, not much exists, so there's nothing really to steal. But really, something I've observed, and I don't know if this is true or not, about Nigeria is that, I don't know, it seems like we can't really solve that incentive problem, at least at the public level, until there is absolutely zero left, you know? In, in, because, the, in the kitty, right? Yeah, because it feels like however low oil prices get, they can just do cuts and trims around the edges, close your eyes, uh, cross your fingers, and hope it goes back up. And then we'll be back with business as usual in... I don't know, a couple of years. I mean, who knows? There can also be another external shock. Maybe America decides to start bombing in the Middle East and oil prices shoot up, <laughs> you know? And then, yeah, suddenly it's 1973 all over again. So it doesn't really feel to me like the incentive at, at the, especially at the federal government, will really change. However indebted the country may be anyway, however shitty our public finance may be, until there is absolute zero coming in, you know. It yeah, seems no, like no. there's always enough to pay people with power to, I don't know, do anyhow, so to speak. Yeah, no, no, I, I think you are absolutely correct in that, you know, we, we are incorrigible in that respect, you know. We just feel like, oh, it's temporary, we'll borrow until we can we can make our way out of this. Oh, it's temporary, we'll just print more money until we can make our way out of this, you know. But uh, I don't think that's sustainable, right? Because I feel like, so, you know, at least uh, I didn't really look into... Mm, Tinubu's article about budget deficits the other day, you know, but but obviously, you know, the United States has already set some kind of grand example for countries with low revenue to to, to get their way out of the coronavirus situation. Just mm-hmm. bring two trillion, and um, and everybody will be fine. 
So how crazy is that, by the way? Oh, well, I'm waiting for my check, so, <laughs> so I, I really, I really can't complain. <laughs> I really, I, I really can't complain because uh, I'm waiting for my check. But, but yeah, you know, so they've they've, they've kind of drawn the roadmap because we we like to copy these things, and so we should mm. see ourselves printing plenty of money in the near future. Now, if as um, a number of people predict which is that the demand for, for oil never goes back to the levels where they were simply because people's habits have changed. You know, we've, we've compressed a decade of change into three months or six months or, you know, then definitely by 2022, hopefully we should see um, radicals coming out to contest for the 2023 election. I hope we'll see intelligent radicals and not, and not more populism. So <laughs> what, what are the odds? Uh, yes, have you yes. been following Jerry Jones? Uh, I mean, his research. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Uh, Jerry Jones, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, 10% so, so, so what, what? democracy, right? Yeah, but did you read Hive Minds? I, I read a synopsis of Hive Minds. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So his big thesis was that national IQ matters a lot more for development, wealth, and national wealth, basically. A lot more than seeing your individual IQ. And um, we know our national IQ in Nigeria and even Africa is low. So if we talk about intelligent radicals, I'm always like, what are the odds? Yeah. yeah. If you just randomly pick out of the population, what are the odds that we'll get that intelligent radical who understands all the nuances and not a socialist yeah. ideologue? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 you know, I looked at some of the plots from his book, you know, and um, he tells a convincing story, but but for me, I, I don't buy it, um, just for the simple reason that uh, I, again, but then this is a personal bias, um, All right. of mine against IQ studies. Uh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I, I feel like they don't predict so much, uh, at least in terms of, I mean, people say they predict income, right? Uh, yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about the magnitude of the effects, at least. And, and you know, yeah. Well, so, well, I don't know. We can be suspicious of uh, large effect sizes. I, I don't know, because there's a lot of interaction with, with this thing. And people Correct. are not just people are not just Correct. born, and then it's a straight curve to wherever it is they want to get to in life. But I, I think I think the core of the the profession, behavioral genetics studies, I think they they hold up pretty well. Even if the effect size, if you want to debate whether it is ten percent or fifty percent, I think it, it still holds up pretty well. At least some of the biggest studies in the field from plumbing and code they've replicated really well yeah yeah um, so, so i know them i know heckman right? and Cole have their critics but correct sorry correct come again no 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 see i i i agree with you in some ways so in actuality uh this this quarter now i'm looking at more behavioral research for some reasons but you know when it when it comes to the IQ studies, I feel like there's some mixed 
um, findings in there. I can't remember who, who wrote the one last year and controlled for socioeconomic sta- uh, status of the family and, you know, effects dropped out, you know. But but in terms of, like, for me, I feel like the big O research, um, so the, the personality research, the big five uh, personality research, to me, actually feels stronger than IQ. Uh, again, but again, that's my, my I, I had some priors, you know, and so encountering some papers in this domain, I feel like the, the strength of the result was not enough to, to like update my priors and you know, update my my posterior in the other direction. You know, I think personality yeah. matters a lot, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you can look at all the studies about the weird countries, right? Mm-hmm. And see how the big five affects their outcomes, you know, uh, the whole... Um, openness, conscientiousness, uh, neuroticism, you know, I find those results very, very convincing because I know that conscientiousness matters at least for outcomes, you know, and so to the extent that those things are correlated with IQ, then, you know, maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, I just, you know, my naive read is that someone's measure of quantitative and verbal knowledge when they were much younger, you know, should not be too strong a predictor, as much as their personality. You know, so I feel like we we are we are getting two different things from these two different sides. Maybe when they reconcile those studies, you know. But the larger point stands that if at random in the population we cannot get someone intelligent and conscientious, um, then we're fucked, right? You know, and you know, it's it's you know the interesting thing is uh C.S. Lewis says something like that. He says, "See, uh, I'm not the only one." Dawkins. He says, "See, when you want to select a leader, you know, select them for integrity, select them for their diligence, right?" And there's two other characteristics that he mentioned. And he said, "The reason is this, you know, all those things they tell you before they go in are not going to work exactly that way." So you need you need to choose somebody who can tell you the truth and say, man, all those things I was telling you I was gonna do, I've gone inside and it does it doesn't look like that can happen. Uh, you know, let's imagine Donald Trump was a very honorable man of the kind that C.S. Lewis was describing. You say, I'm gonna drain the swamp and everything, and then he comes out, he's gonna tell you guys, man, that swamp that I thought they existed here, that deep state. Um, it's not really that way, you know. This is what it is, and this is what I'm going to do about it. So that ability to tell the truth and change course and and execute on it is actually um, more important, at least in his in his vocabulary or in his uh, in his thinking than uh, than the intelligence, uh, so to speak. Mm. What what what's your what's your read on culture? How much does it matter? I mean them. Joel Mokir, the drama Klosky and Co. What's your take on, on that project? It matters, oh, it matters, you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it cuts both ways, right? You know, so one, one side of the sword is you could say, for instance, Chinese are very hardworking, very diligent, and then the other side you could say, but you know, you can't trust them in their dealings with outsiders. You know, same thing, you know, there's always two sides to these things, right? But but mm. it's I, I you know, my, my read of it is it's very strong and the effects are very strong. And you just have to 
at, at least for policymakers when they're designing policies, they have to work within the culture that they find themselves, you know. And it's just like, uh, so for instance, you know, um, I think one, one big hindrance to foreign businesses at first in China was getting over, say, their aversion to paying bribes or their aversion to joint ventures and that kind of thing. You know, but uh, there are some things that, you know, those guys don't even consider bribes, right? And, mm. and so they consider them to be gifts. So what do you do? Are you going to say, in my culture, this is a bribe, and your culture is a gift, so I'm not going to do it? You know, so that, that was a very important thing that I kind of picked up, at least from my read um, of, uh, you know, of at least the Chinese landscape. Now, bringing it to Nigeria, you know, I was actually discussing this with a friend from the Middle Belt, and he said, you know, that he actually thinks that's true. There are a lot of things that we might think are bribes, just the way we, we think about it broadly, with, you know, our whole ethical mindset shaped by, you know, Christianity and all that. But for them, it's just gift given. So it's, mm-hmm. you, have to, you have to work within the constraints of the culture you find yourself. You know, the culture you find yourself, and, and we see that actually um, a lot, you know. Like, I actually know people who hire employees and expect them to steal, mm. right? Yeah. And I, I guess things just go on fine, right? And, and mm. I'm sure we've all seen this, right? I mean, when you hire a security man and you pay him, um, say, 20000 a month, right? Mm. You're probably asking him to steal one way or another. Or have inside also. Yes. But in sometimes, you know, there, there's, it's like there's a latent expectation that, see, I have tried, I've had one, two, three, four, five security men, they all stole from me. Therefore, all security men steal. And so the next security man I hire, I'm going to price protect and I'm going to pay them less so that on average, it's not going to cost me more than I planned. That's rational expectation, Abby. <laughs> <laughs> so, so don't even get me started on that. <laughs> so that happens. Uh, all right. There's one one other debate I would like to pull you into right now. Um, this whole empirical revolution, so-called empirical revolution, econ, that has now basically taken over the development subfield. What's your take on that? I know, I mean, Duflo and Bernadette won the Nobel with Kramer, of course. It's a big endorsement for that particular research program. I'm not a fan, honestly. I agree with Pritchett. Of uh, our cities? <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not really a fan. But what, what's your take? <laughs> well, for me, I just believe in horses for courses, right? Uh, and this guy's paper has a, a, a nice example of that, right? Um, not paper, uh, but Slate Star Codex has a recent blog post that has a nice example of that, which is the the BMG, BMJ paper on um, on parachutes, right? You know, there's mm. no there's no evidence that, at least from an RCT trial, that parachutes are effective, you know. And so, because obviously, there's nobody willing to volunteer for that experiment. But more importantly, I think, is what's the question you're trying to answer, right? So, you know, besides RCT in the developmental space, you know, even in the, the empirical space, that's the archival empirical space, you know, there's more, more, more push to causality, all kinds of um, uh, looking for, for proper identification, you know, which, 
which is very, very difficult, you know, in the real world, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and more of a push to to first order effects, but I I think it push it pushes us in the right direction of um of 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 making more making stronger causal claims, right? But at the same time, you know, we shouldn't um, miss the forest for the trees, you know. So this is what I think, right? And I might have a couple of tweets where I'm snarky about it, but I think recently. We're not doing as much science as scientism, right? And so, mm. you know, India, yeah, experts, experts all over the place, and um, and that's wrong, you know. And so we ignore evidence because it's not passed through an RCT. We ignore evidence because it's not passed through, you know, some gold standard of. Uh, uh, instrumental uh, model with proper identification, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that's correct, you know. And I'm not even talking about p values or or significance levels. I'm only I'm even talking about let's even start with how we about the the design itself, you know. Observational studies are valid mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. They could tell us something really, 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 really useful, right? If I observe mm-hmm. somebody, it's the same thing every day. And then he dies. Guess what? That's a question, right? Um, and I think there are a lot of like studies that involve poison, most likely to be observational, because you will not get the the other side from RCT. So, so there will be there will be pushback, right? Because what what usually happens is I think these things happen in cycles, right? And you know, once in a while, you know, the editors at most journals feel like standards are becoming loose, right? And then mm-hmm. You know, some young guys come up with some new methodology and they're like, my God, this is the best thing since sliced bread. This is how everybody should do this now because it, it solves for this, you know. And so all the researchers will tell you, will tell you, you know, just learn the method, but don't, don't worry too much about it. Focus on the quality of the question that you're trying to answer, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 really, it's really tough, you know, because if you... If you if you read older papers, you know I've had older researchers say that man, based on today's standards, I couldn't have gotten <laughs> couldn't have gotten shit done, you know, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. because it's uh, the the kind of um, the kind of evidence they want you to have. I think it's just the evidence standard. I think is is too high for the real world, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of and I kind of worry about the policy implication. Do. I mean, if we can do like a time reversal, uh, some of these results would predict or maybe recommend that the industrial revolution probably shouldn't have happened because there there is no causal evidence that it will work. But we know that it did. I mean. <laughs> so, Here we so, are. No, so, so, yeah. So, what you're what you're talking about now is is scientism, right? In other words, uh, is what Taleb says: the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? Uh, which is this idea that oh, masks don't work. Why don't masks work? Because we've done several regressions and we didn't find effects, right? Mm-hmm. But but that's not true clearly because your your grammar will tell you that. Are you kidding me? You mean if you wear this thing on your nose, it's not going to work? Of course it works, right? 
and mm. and the only thing is that your your methods probably don't capture the effect sizes or something you know so but but then and and now that's where it becomes a problem right because the the CDC and the WHO will take that absence of evidence right as evidence of absence and say masks don't work but mm. that's not what those papers said those papers said we fail to reject the null that <laughs> are effective right so yeah. so so you see scientism scientism is this idea that the the true explanation of the statistical test differs from what the test itself is and mm. and we see that a lot you know mm. I, I think people should just be careful with social science research generally. I mean, like Andrew Gelman said, there are no true zeros. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there is no absolute starting point. I mean, multiple things are, are interacting at the same time. You know, so it's always strange to me when I see development studies and, oh, you have money. And you want to decide whether to build a power plant or do cash transfers, for example. Oh, the evidence clearly says cash transfers work. People have these positive income shocks over over nine years. But I think the field to measure the effects of the power plant 30, 40 years down the line, you know. So it's it's crazy, man. Yeah, you know, as Taleb says, you know, you, you can macro BS, uh, but you cannot micro BS. <laughs> you know? And then the second thing is, is also to understand that most of these results are about mean effects, right? But yeah. in, in, the, in the real world, sometimes and many times you don't really care about mean effects, right? Yeah. Uh, in other words, you're probably looking for you might be looking for some part of the distribution, not the average, right? Uh, mm. Maybe you're looking for the left tail. For instance, the conditional cash transfer, as you mentioned, might be that on average, this worked, right? Uh, yeah. But, but, but the people you're really interested in might just be the people with um, on, the, on the left tail of the distribution, maybe the really poor types, right? And then yeah. their outcomes yeah. might be different, you know? So, again, that's why... Um, just for me, like I usually prefer, um, I, I, I like papers that, that sort of break the distribution, maybe they do quintile regressions, because uh, they tell me more uh, if, if the outcomes are, are different for different parts of the distribution. So again, it's, it's horses for courses, I think. I think the question comes before the method, and it might just be that the question does not want you to use RCT or something else, right? So, for instance, I think uh, this uh, this this coronavirus drug that Gilead is trialing, I think it's an observational study as opposed to an RCT, right? And we'll learn. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, so the method comes, the question should come before them, should precede the method. Uh, when people try to push, force to, uh, force your questions to conform to the method, I, I feel like they have a, um, they have a dog in the fight. You know, mm. interesting. You know, my my main stick that said is we can't just copy um, these developed countries. It's not going to work. Uh, mm. Thankfully, we have we have Sweden and Iran as natu- natural experiments to to observe. 
but I feel like we can even do better than them, right? You know, yeah, um, if, yeah. If we really, if we really put our heads together, you know, yeah. um, all those yeah. I saw all those videos about Iranians licking the wall on their mosque, and I'm like, this is a disaster <laughs> trying trying to happen, right? Uh, but the yeah. Swedes have been more more sensible about it, you know, protect the old, increase spacing in restaurants, um, prevent uh, more than fifty people in the same room, right? Because the dosage matters, right? The viral load matters. And we can do something yeah. like that, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Bottom-up risk mitigation. The government should um, spend its time, right, and money, and, you know, buy up all the masks that they can in the world and just be sharing the mask for everybody. Like, literally, mm-hmm. you, you mm-hmm. Know, at, the, at the bus stop, the conductor should have, like, 50 masks. You know, just distribute masks. That's the best we can do. Right to 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 contain the spread, you know. And if Nassim Taleb is right, that can quickly quickly reduce the um, that can um, reshape the curve so it's not uh, as exponential, right? And then uh, allow people to mitigate risk the way that they they feel like. You know, different companies will have different measures. You know, the market woman might decide she wants to go twice a week as opposed to every day, right? And, you know, but but the 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 impact on on the economy and lives, I think, is just too huge for Nigeria to think about locking down until somebody somewhere discovers a vaccine or or, or a cure. You know, it's, it's mm. it just won't work. It just mm. won't work. In, in the interesting point you made about about viral load, I completely forgot about that. I read this paper, I think, two days ago. I mean, do it's a preprint. Uh, but I don't really know how much firewall against bad idea is the peer review process these days. So, but basically, what they found is that lockdowns are actually worse for viral load, and the fastest spread in in the measured population were via domestic exposure with, with shutdown population and public transport. Oh, yeah. oh, definitely. You know, I, I think I, I responded to someone this morning. I was like, if you've ever ridden on the subway in New York, you cannot be surprised at the outcomes in New York. In rush hour, it's like, my God, it's like I've never seen so many human beings in such tight situation. Uh, you can't even reach into your pocket because it's really, really tight. You know, so I'm, I'm, I was absolutely not surprised that, you know, the, the infections and deaths in, in, in New York. So it's like, you know, the viral load, it, it, it's just, I mean, it, it's common sense. But at the same time, if you dig into the research, you know, uh, the research on like homesis, uh, which is this idea that Taleb wrote about in Anti-Fragile, where he, where, you know, you talk about how you get some exposure, right? Uh, yeah. Like a vaccine to, yeah. to, to, to the agent so that your immune system can, can develop its response. So, so the yes. viral load is key. And if everybody's wearing masks, that just means that even if you, even if it hits you, because I feel like most of the people that we see that are symptomatic, you know, are just people who got a lower viral load mm-hmm. for some reason or the other, you know. Yeah. And so, and so their immune systems kick in and and do the needful, you know. So, but people are absolutely, absolutely dying today in in Nigeria. Um, and it's, it's then a trade-off for them between between short death by hunger mm-hmm. or a possible death from the coronavirus. I also think that we are, we are not really pushing the envelope 
if I can use that phrase. I don't think we should really be bogged down with um, luxury ethical concerns from the West. You know, so so Robin Hansen has been really big on the relation. I don't know why African governments cannot do that. You know, why? Why? I mean, let healthy young people get deliberately infected and then you study. Uh, we know the young people are, are relatively immune. I don't know. At least within the margins of error, that, that's true. So, I mean, we can, we can do all kinds of things. We don't have to go by any, any templates, you know. Yeah. No, I, I mean, so so I, I guess the, the only challenge with variolation is just this idea that, um, you know, for sure, some people are self-selecting into debt. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, but I, I think that there, there, there's, you know, we, we are lucky, you know. Yeah. Um, all the data I've seen on debt, it's the older population that, that gets really hit, you know, 70 plus. We are a young population, you know, and so we can you know, we can afford to get through this with minimal disruptions to people's lives. People were already suffering, right? You know, we have a mm. hundred plus million people that are on a dollar a day. And, mm-hmm. you know, what this is just going to do is just going to kill some people. You know? Yeah. And so it's, it's, um, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. So, and I think we should also really push for universal testing at some point. Yeah. So, you know what? For me, I'm not so worried about testing, right? Uh, and this is mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's a strange thing, but I think the testing is useless. Uh, I think double testing is <laughs> something. No relations between death and, and testing, and and that makes sense. But but this is this is what I think about testing. Yeah. Um. So sometime in February, I felt like I had the flu. Um. This was mid February, and I was worried as if I had the coronavirus. Yeah. And I checked everything, checked my insurer. And they couldn't tell me where to get the test. And so mm. the question I asked myself, you know, that night when I was meditating was, if I had the coronavirus, what would be different, right? And mm. and so that's the question. What what would be different if you if you know you have the coronavirus? If you have the coronavirus, the only difference is that you should isolate, right? And so what that means is that for the population, if you feel like you are ill, you should remain at home and not impose an externality on others. But if you feel like yeah. you're fine, then you should go about. In other words, I, I don't see what information universal testing will bring um, into changing your decision. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, but what about the asymptomatics, though? Okay. I mean, so, I, I, I mean that what, what the data is saying is that 90% or close to 90% of the infected population can actually be asymptomatic for... So so that's exactly my point, right? Let's say you rule out universal testing, right? So long as we're not talking about um, uh, serology, right? That's after the yeah. fact, right? Yeah. If we're talking yeah. about Everybody testing for yeah. the COVID, right? Yeah. Then I, I don't see how much we gain from testing at one point in time. So I think there was, there was a small Italian village and they had to do tests at two points in time. You see the thing, right? Yeah, because, yeah, I did. Because if, if, you, if you test me for COVID now, right and i don't show it it could be that i've had it yeah you see the you see the point right mm. and so there's no way to tell um from a negative if 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 it's a pre or post mm. so so which is why people are, are hoping for tests to detect antibodies after the fact 
you know, so, so for me, I feel like it doesn't add much information to your decision making, even if you test the entire population tomorrow. But what, what do you think of Roma's plan, though? I mean, his own approach is um, just isolate the sick or tell them to isolate. I mean, so if you have any kind of symptom, don't even, we're not going to bother testing you. We are going to exactly. presume that you have it. Exactly mm-hmm. my point. That is exactly <laughs> what we should be doing. I, that is 100% let, my idea. But the let's I test felt, everybody else repeatedly. Exactly. The moment I felt sick, I isolated at home, and I called a couple of people that I had met with the previous week, and I told them, see, I'm not feeling too great. It might be the flu, or it might be that I have COVID. I'm unable to get tested, so I don't know for a fact. But if you start to feel ill, just remember this conversation. And that's what I told them. None of them fell ill, so it's very unlikely that I, I had the, the coronavirus. So um, I think there's a couple of states, I think Alabama was one, where you know how they did the test? Because at that point, you know, enough testing kits were not available. So they would actually mix the samples from five people, right, and do a single test on that sample, right? And then if it turns out a positive, they're just going to tell them that five of you, inside five of you, some of you have coronavirus, so all of you assume you have it. You see the point, right? <laughs> so you, you yeah. could use one kit for five people, which which mm-hmm. was really clever, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. What that told me instinctively was that, see, by selecting to test, you should isolate. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean, right? Anybody who yeah. selects to test should isolate because automatically the, their prior is that they have it already. Mm, anyone who meets the testing criteria, so to speak, you just isolate. The moment you feel like I I want to test for coronavirus, just isolate because you know it then becomes you either have it or you don't. But whatever is pushing you to want to do the test is a selection problem. You see, and I think that was the problem with the serology test that they just did in California, which is that there's a selection problem in the people who chose who chose to be tested for the antibodies. You know, they are most likely people who felt like they had the coronavirus, but what you really want is a random sample, you know. So so in other words, I, I don't think testing is going to add that much information to, at least to the Nigerian space. Like, you know, okay, you test, then what? We say you're positive or negative, okay, then we, we do what? We isolate you in the isolation center, or you could be isolated at home the moment you just felt like you were sick without exposing anybody else, right? So so what the government should really spend its time on now is like seriously on pushing out information. This is here, this is here, everybody, this is bad. You know, maintain social distancing, you know, no clubs open, no large weddings, massive spacing in restaurants and churches, not even six feet, 10 feet, right? And then share the masks for free. Free, like free, no cost. Everybody should have it for free. You know, if you have to buy up a contract with, with a Chinese factory or two or ten to get that out there, everybody have the mask for free. You know, because the alternative is that we've locked ourselves down for nothing and we will have to open this economy when the insecurity forces our hand. Mm. You know, so that's 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 just my 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 ten cents on that. Yeah, yeah. One final, final thing before I let you go. What's the one big idea that you really like to see spread 
far and wide. Maybe Nigeria or globally. I mean, what what's your answer on that? I think it'll be it'll be the second thing I I I, I told you. I, I mean, mm. The second thing I I pointed out in the conversation. You don't have any rights that you cannot defend. That is literally my mantra. Um, uh, there's an exciting, there's a very interesting book, interested in martial art by Rory Miller. Something about you cannot outsource the defense of your family. You understand? You cannot outsource the defense of your wife, of your kids, right? And so, yeah. any rights that you cannot defend, you don't have. Mm. Rights don't come from God. Rights don't come <laughs> from reason. Rights don't come from nature. They're not like natural rights. Rights don't come from the air. Rights are only those that you can defend. That, and that's, that's, that's yeah, that's, that's, that's the one big idea that, you know, I like most people to, to, to really reflect on and ask themselves every single right they enjoy in their life. Um, can I really defend this right? If the push comes to show, can I defend my rights to a wife, to a, to a child, to this apartment? Can I defend my rights to my farm, to my business, to my religion? And then if the answer is no, uh, you need to start thinking about who can help you, who, who is responsible for defending those rights for you. That, that's, that's very interesting. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. I have had incredible fun having this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Toby. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. You can subscribe to the podcast and newsletter on untrapped.substack.com. Untrapped.substack.com. Thank you. Until next time.